therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter 8. And that was the voice of a Brook Hills member that many of you know and love, Dakota Carter. And this is, yeah. <laughs> yes. So Carter's story, Carter, Dakota Carter's story is in the worship guide. And we've had these each week, which has just been a unique opportunity in this Life Versus series to not only study rich passages from God's word, but hear the transformation that God has brought through this text of scripture to people sitting next to you. And I wish that we could take 80 some odd weeks to tell all the stories that we've gotten in. And I hope in God's grace we can come back to life verses and just do this again and again and again and just hear story after story of the transformation Jesus brings through his powerful word. And so one of the things we've been saying week after week in this series is just reminding ourselves of this truth. God's word is living and active. This book is alive. It reaches up and grabs people. And, and so we've heard stories of how his word does that. It brings life where there was death. It brings hope where there was despair and peace where there was turmoil and freedom where there was bondage. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So if you will, will just look again with me at the first two verses of this glorious chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Oh God, transform us by your word, we pray. Amen. Convert me. Oddly enough, those are the words I found myself saying to a friendly Muslim man who runs a great restaurant outside of Atlanta, and it was the first restaurant where I ate shawarma, and it was amazing. And, uh, and in the front of the restaurant, there was a little gift shop. And so I was walking around the gift shop waiting for my shawarma, and I saw a number of different things that were interesting. And one of them was a little book about converting to Islam. And as I'm looking at the book, the owner of the restaurant comes over and says hello, and we shook hands, and I introduced myself. And after some small talk, I asked him, and I said, what would I learn about your faith if I read this book? And I think he was trying to figure me out. He wasn't sure, you know, am I setting a trap or something? Where am I really coming from? And I would have felt the same way. So, so he sort of hemmed and hawed and dodged around a little bit. So just pause the story for just a second. I, um, I've never been good at creating these really smooth, seamless transitions into gospel conversations like some of you. So I usually just barrel in 
and, uh, and then try to recover on the way <laughs> afterwards. And so this was one of those moments where I'm just asking, hey, tell me what you would learn if, if what I would learn if I read this book. And, uh, and again, he didn't really yield an answer very immediately. And so I asked him in a bunch of different ways to try to prove to him, I really want to know what you believe. This obviously matters to you. There's a book on how to convert to your faith. It obviously matters to you. Tell me what you believe. And he continued to hem and haw, and I finally just, I laughed, and I said, please convert me. Right here, convert me. And then he laughed, and then he finally indulged me by telling me what it was about his faith that he loves the most. And then I had a chance to talk to him about Christian faith and the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. And uh, I don't tell that story because it has this, this wild, crazy ending where, you know, you say, and that same man is now the pastor of a Southern Baptist church, you know, um, in the outskirts of Atlanta. No, that's not why I tell the story. I pray for him often and think of him often. I tell that story so now I can put you on the hook. If you had a restaurant and I was trying to get you to tell me what makes Christian faith so unique? What does Christianity offer that you can't get any other way? What is the essence of Christian faith? And if I said, don't pull punches, convert me. Let's do this. Convert me now. Where would you go? And I would suggest to you that maybe you should take me to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Because Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, is God, if you will, answering the question, what does Christianity offer that I can't get any other way? It's God's answer to that most relevant question. You think about the human condition. So I've had conversations with people right here in Birmingham, Alabama. I've had conversations with Maasai tribesmen in North Africa. And the story is the same all over the planet. Everybody's trying to get clean. There's, there's something on us, and we can't get it off. And we've all got different ways, but we're all scrubbing somewhere with something. It's the common story all around the world. Everybody somehow intuitively knows, I'm not right. I'm not right on the inside. Something's wrong, and I need help. You know, and the Western approach of kind of changing all that with just positive self-talk isn't working either. I heard a song earlier this week. I think it's a popular song. The artist sings about the conflict between what she hears in therapy and what she sees in the mirror and feels in her own experience. And she says this, everything's going to be all right. Everything is going to be okay. It's going to be a good, good life. That's what my therapists say. But she's not buying it because in the very next line and in the chorus, she says, I'm a mess, I'm a loser, I'm a hater, I'm a user. Which isn't a bad translation of Romans 3, by the way. Romans 3, same letter earlier, is a diagnosis of the human condition and it's not flattering. It's utterly devastating. Outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ, Romans 3 says, we're all toast. We're all a mess. We're all losers. We're all haters. We're all users. We're all addicts. 
No one seeks after God. Nobody's running in his direction. No one is good. No one is righteous. We're all running as fast as we can away from God, apart from God's grace. And the Bible says that the world, if you look out at the world, you see in every single person two characteristics. We are all of us rebels and slaves. All of us are rebels and slaves. All of us have a heart that's running away from God, and all of us are hooked on the very things that are going to kill us in the end. That's the bad news. And what Christianity offers is something we can't get any other way. Jesus is the one solution to our rebellion and our slavery. He is the answer to sin's penalty and sin's power. It is a total comprehensive salvation package wrapped up in Jesus Christ and nowhere else on earth. So, so to be joined to Christ, which is the gift we're talking about in Romans chapter 8, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So to be joined, united, connected, linked up with Jesus is to come to grips with the reality that we are, number one, no longer condemned. Jesus takes our death. That's the first thing I hope you'd tell me if we were in your restaurant gift shop is that there's a possibility for us to put our faith in Jesus and there's no more condemnation because Jesus takes our death. That's something you can't get any other way except through Christian faith. When Romans 8 announces no condemnation, bear in mind it's Romans chapter 8. In other words, this isn't the beginning of the conversation. It's an, it's an ongoing conversation. It's a it's a point in the line of a developing argument. The last time Paul used the word condemnation was three chapters earlier in Romans chapter 5. And there in Romans chapter 5, Paul was talking about how Adam blew it so epically in Genesis 3 that he broke the world. Everything that's wrong with this world. He opened a door in the universe and in came sin and death and misery. Everything that makes this world sad and angry, everything that isolates us, everything that destroys and dehumanizes, all that came when Adam and Eve opened the door in the garden and in it came rushing into the world. They disobeyed God in the garden and in came sin and death. And Paul says in chapter 5 verse 16, with death comes judgment resulting in, there's the word, condemnation. Condemnation for the entire human race because we all are born into Adam. We're born into this broken template and that's the way that it is. So no condemnation. If we just come to Romans chapter eight and assume there's no conversation going on before, it doesn't register with us. Romans eight doesn't make us feel this impact of glory. It doesn't register as particularly awesome news if, one, we mistake the real problem. It's in your notes. If we mistake the real problem, no condemnation doesn't really affect us. So, so you might ask, what's the real problem? Here, here's the real problem. The real problem is that God is infinitely holy and we are desperately sinful. That combination of things spells judgment and condemnation. God is infinitely holy, immutably, unchangeably righteous, committed to do righteousness in the world, and we are unrighteous, and we come into this world not sort of just victims of that state of things. We are co-conspirators. We're, we're the weapons against this God who would 
who would hold us under his sway. We don't want that. We come into this world itching to run the place. That, that's what's in our hearts. That's why we read that in Romans chapter 3, and you travel to other countries, and you find out it's the same. You know, we don't have to teach little babies, and they get older, we don't have to teach them how to be disobedient. Why? Because it's just pent up in their little hearts. That's why they only look like angels when they're asleep. <laughs> right? We know that. It, the, the babies here in, in this room and in rooms in the nursery, just they are crazy, cute, little dictators. <laughs> and you travel to the other side of the world, and guess what? They look different, but they're crazy, cute, little dictators too. They just speak a different language. Even missionary babies. You know, you, you would think these are the Lord's choicest servants. You know, my, my son and I, Hunter, we, we traveled to Greece years ago to, to do a retreat with Brook Hills, and a bunch of you came, and uh, different ones were doing different things, and Hunter was on the crew to do childcare for the missionary kids, and there were a, a, lot, a gaggle of them, and there were lots of, lots of children to take care of, and... Um, these are missionaries in some of the hardest places in the world, and Hunter's watching these kids all day, and he comes back, and he's like, Dad, their kids are as bad as kids in the States. It's like, <laughs> like, how does that even work? It's almost like sin has infected the whole planet. Like, like everybody's affected by this. We, we have a Bible that tells us which way is up. The stuff isn't utterly mysterious. He tells us why this is the way it is. The Bible doesn't let us miss the why behind what's going on in this world. Here's the why. We've sinned against God. And we don't deserve mercy. You know, if we use the language that infers or implies that we deserve mercy, we're not talking about mercy anymore. Mercy doesn't use language of deserving or owing. Owing is justice language, just desert. Deserving is, now we're in the justice wing, and things don't go well for us in the justice wing. We don't talk about what God owes us, because once we get into that conversation, it's not encouraging. What God owes us, if he owes us anything, and he does, it's judgment. We've sinned against him. You know, Whatever we thought our biggest problem in life was, when we read the Bible, we find out we have a much bigger, deeper problem. This world wakes up each morning and millions of people in the West think the biggest threat that's facing us ranges from carbon emissions to traffic. We, are, we have such a superficial read on on what the real dangers are in the world and where the real threats are in the world. Friends, read the scriptures and you find out the biggest threat, and there isn't a close second, the biggest threat to fallen humanity every day from the day the door opened and in came sin in Genesis chapter 3, the biggest threat from the fall of Adam and Eve to the return of the king is the righteousness of God. There, there is a meteor trucking toward planet earth and the meteor is called a righteous and holy judge and he's the one true and living God and the meteor we learn when we read the Bible isn't going to miss it's not going to make a glancing blow it will be a direct hit it will strike its target invariably infallibly 
which means this. You know, this is such a familiar text of Scripture, which is, which is why that makes these kinds of passages a little bit dangerous for us. Because we get to know condemnation too soon. We get there too soon and we don't ask the question, why no condemnation? Why is there no condemnation? Why is no condemnation apparently such welcome news to the original readers of this verse? Because to many of us, we think no condemnation is duh, obviously. I mean, what is he going to do, condemn us? Right? We have this assumption that's wrong. We don't ask the question, why is no condemnation such great news? It's welcome news because the last time they heard the word condemnation and it came up in Romans, we were all of us under it, asking for it. We learned in Romans chapter 5 that God is going to judge evil and we're inside the problem of evil. We're, we don't have, you know... Seats in the nosebleed section, sort of looking down objectively at what's going to happen to all those evil people. We're in the problem. We've got the virus. This is why, in one way or another, every Sunday, we acknowledge our sin. We sing truth that reminds us that something's wrong. Pastor Daniel serves us so well every Sunday, and he does it by choosing songs that are full of the gospel. And when he does that, it helps me form two words that in my pride, I don't want to say. But I say it every Sunday, in some way or another. I'm wrong. Or, I've sinned. And what's the, what's the implication of that? I deserve judgment from a holy God. That's the truth of it. I've sinned and God is holy. And I've sinned and if God gives me what he owes me, I'm toast. That's what we remember when we remember the story of the gospel. And, and I pray that even now, God would in his grace open eyes around this room to see the state that we are in apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, apart from him going to the cross in our place, condemnation is hurling in my direction and there's only one safe place to hide. Oh, friends, if you're here and you haven't hidden in Christ, run to him. Don't wait until tomorrow. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did in his perfect life and death and resurrection. There is... There is no blindness more devastating than the blindness of thinking, I don't need salvation. That is the deepest blindness on the planet to say, yeah, I could use some other things. I mean, if you want a list, I'd be happy to provide. There are some other things, that, but salvation really isn't the word that kind of comes to mind immediately when you ask, what are the things that I need the most? That is a deep, fundamental blindness, which leads to the next point. We mistake the real problem and we mistake the real solution. We mistake the real solution. We know Jesus died on the cross. We know that intellectually. We can say that without even thinking. But, but in our everyday lives, I mean, we, thinking realistically and practically what comes out of our hearts, we think, yeah, there are lots of people worse than me. I mean, there's some real jerks in the world, you know? Right? That's what, the way that we tend to think. And the people who really need salvation, I mean, if that's on the short list of the things that people need, the people who need that are, are the really big sinners. They're the ones who carry the ID. You know, they're the ones who, who commit the headliner sins. They're, they're murderers. You know, they're thieves. They live in 
Las Vegas, you know, or vacation there, right? It's, it's that, that. Those are the people who really need uh, mercy from God. <laughs> There's some really bad people out there, and it's really good that Jesus stooped all the way down, you know, to scrape the bottom of the barrel. You know, we, that comes out of us in our attitudes, maybe not our words, but but there's this condescending glance toward a culture sliding toward hell as if we're not on the inside of the problem ourselves. And we think the, the big things that the rest of us need are more like um, sweeping policy reform would be good. You know, give, we need to give peace a chance. We need to be uh, kinder, better, nicer, more civil. You know what I need? Here, here's what I need. I need a spiritual workout plan. You know, I just, I just need to get more discipline. Ultimately, that's what I need. Salvation, I mean, maybe. I wouldn't exactly put it that way. I need just a workout plan to get back in shape spiritually, right? Or, or a million other savior options and savior substitutes available right here in 35242, right here in Birmingham, Alabama. We mistake the real problem. We mistake the real solution. And, and next, we don't understand grace, Because of those first two, it follows that we misunderstand grace. Here, here's a recipe for a heart that's unmoved by the story of grace. So first, inflate your own goodness, and second, deflate God's holiness, and there you have it. That's that's the recipe for a heart that's not amazed by God's grace. We don't sense grace is amazing, it's good glad it's there. Don't feel thrilled, not dazzled by that kind of good news. Songwriter Keith Green, I think he captured this so well a couple decades ago when he wrote these words. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold. And Romans 8 is here to warm us up. It is here to fire the gospel in our hearts and to make it click. Because Romans 8, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Romans 8 emerges out of the thick darkness that is Romans 7. What a dark chapter that is. And Paul's talking about his experiential relationship with God's law, the Mosaic law. And you ask the question, okay, what's your relationship? Tell me about the nature of your relationship with the law. And Paul says, it's killing me. It is literally killing killing me every day of my life it is killing me and it's not it's not the law's fault the law is good and righteous and holy i'm the problem but every time my soul comes in contact with god's law i am wrecked i am decimated i'm a puddle on the ground that's romans chapter 7 then we come over to romans chapter 8 and we hear no condemnation Where does this come from? Where do we get this promise that this holy God who condemns sin has acted in Christ to save the very ones who deserve to be condemned? The biggest threat, the meteor of God's judgment, judgment, which was promised in Romans chapter 5, condemnation, God's judgment, that meteor was going to make contact with a world that had pushed God aside, And then we read in verse 3 of chapter 8 that apparently it's already happened. That apparently God's judgment has already fallen. That God's righteousness has made devastating contact with my sin already. Look at verse 3. God condemned sin in the flesh. And you say, wait, wait, when? Because I'm still alive. 
When did he condemn sin in the flesh? What flesh? Whose flesh? And the answer that comes out of Romans 8 is Jesus' flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Verse 3, God condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Wait, you ask the question, what does that mean? It means that the meteor of God's holy justice already made landfall. It slammed into the cross of Jesus Christ. He came. He stood in front of you as a substitute. As Daniel was saying just a moment ago, between the holy justice of God and sinful people, Jesus stood. He hung suspended between earth and heaven and absorbed the impact of God's judgment against our sin. The reason there's no condemnation for you isn't because God relaxed the situation and said, oh, forget about judgment, I'm not gonna be righteous. I'm not gonna be righteous anymore. It isn't because he, he relaxed his judgment. The reason there's no condemnation is because he already spent it on someone else who stood in your place. That is the wonder of the gospel. Luther called it the great exchange. He takes my sin, puts it on his chest, and buries them in the grave. And then he rises from the dead and he gives you his righteousness and you walk free forever. It's, who could have imagined that? Who would have made a story up like that? It's God's wisdom. That's why John Wesley said, you hear the story right, and he says, tis music in the sinner's ear. You know, if you think I'm a pretty good person and you read Romans 8, you don't hear music. You know, just you don't hear any music here. But if, if you've blown it, if, if you realize you've been rotten to the core from day one, if you realize you've got debts you can't pay, you've got stains you, you can't scrub clean no matter how hard you try, now no condemnation sings. It sounds like music because it enables us to see something John Stott said that divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice or as another theologian said the God from whom we needed to be saved is the one who has saved us And, and you see the cross as this coming together of God's almighty love and his almighty justice. And there they are, fully, the blazing center of God's glory, shining out from the cross. And suddenly we see what Romans 5 was telling us. God commended his love. He gave us the greatest picture of his love by dying, sending Jesus to die on a cross while we were still sinners. And then it all starts to make sense, the words that were written in a hymn many years ago, which reads this way, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And he writes, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And now you read Romans chapter 8 and you hear music because you who deserve to be condemned 
aren't going to be condemned today or ever. If you're hidden in Christ, if he's your refuge because he takes our death too. Not only no longer condemned, we're no longer slaves. The spirit gives life and freedom. So God has done something about both our rebellion and our bondage. Jesus paid sin's penalty and the spirit overcomes sin's power. It's the one-two punch of comprehensive salvation. Romans 8 is full of teaching about the Holy Spirit. It is all about the Holy Spirit. 19 references in just this one chapter to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is saying clearly, if you read the whole chapter, in no uncertain terms that the mark, the distinguishing mark of the Christian is that we have the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Verse 8, look at it. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's not going to happen. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. So in other words, when you got Christ, you got the Spirit. It's not given to like the, you know, the, the select group of extraordinary Christians. No, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the Spirit comes and lives inside of us. There is a new power for the Christian life. That's in your notes. There's a new power for the Christian life. All believers have the Holy Spirit, and Paul is saying, because we do, there's new power. You can do what you couldn't do before. God's purpose in sending Jesus is connected here in Romans 8, these first four verses, not only to a new status, a new legal status, but to a new life, to a new, if you will, a new you. Is, is drawn up into this text. So you ask Romans chapter 8, why did God condemn sin in the flesh? And the answer is in verse 4. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that something might happen that couldn't happen through the law. The law, Paul basically says in verse 3, the law couldn't change you. That was his struggle in Romans chapter 7. The law, the commandments kept telling me the right thing to do, but it didn't empower me to do it. It kept telling me all the wrong things to avoid, but it didn't give me any power to avoid them. It just, it pointed effectively at all the wrong things that I had been doing, but it didn't lift a finger to help me move in God's direction. You ask the question, why did God condemn sin in the flesh? And Romans 8.1 gives you an answer, and Romans 8.4 gives you an answer. It says, why did God condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus? Verse one, so you'd be released from sin's penalty. No condemnation could be the new sign you hang around your neck. And then in verse four, why did God condemn sin in the flesh? God condemned sin in the flesh so you could know freedom from sin's power brought into your life through the, the working of God's spirit, making you obedient to God's law now from the heart. It's not the law on the wall like it was for centuries in the Old Testament. It's the law in the heart. That's why the, the Old Testament prophets would so often, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they would say, oh, a day is coming and it's going to be awesome because the law is going to come off the wall and off the stone tablets and it's going to be planted here and you're going to want to do it. It's going to be glad-hearted obedience to everything that God says. To use, if I could use theological categories, Jesus died to make both your justification and your sanctification possible. Or I could say it this way. He died to change your status, and he died to change your life. 
to transform you. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit doesn't do all his work in one day. He doesn't you know, flip the switch and suddenly we're perfect. It's a, it's a work over time and he's patiently working in us. And it doesn't happen without fighting, you fighting. And as a matter of fact, if we read the rest of Romans 8, you'd find out he's calling, Paul is calling Christians to fight against sin. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. He calls for that. We keep fighting the faith, but look at this in your notes. We don't fight for acceptance, but from acceptance. So Romans 8 is bookended with great news. Verse 1, no condemnation. Verse 39, no separation. No condemnation before God, no separation from his love. It's not happening now or ever. What does Christianity give you that you can't get anywhere else? God dying for you and God living in you. Imagine two greater, more colossal things to come crashing into your world than God the Son dying in your place and God the Spirit giving you life and power for change. It's an awesome, awesome text. So three gospel gifts to bring home. Three gospel gifts to bring home. If we get this, we'll have, number one, strength to stand helpful little book that came out several years back, a very small book. It's called The Bookends of the Christian Life by Bob Bevington and Jerry Bridges. And they urge the reader to think under this metaphor, to think of your life as a long bookshelf. And if you've ever put books on a bookshelf, you know that books have this way of toppling in one direction or another. And if you put a bookend on the left-hand side, the books won't topple left, but they will topple right. And so you, so you need both bookends to hold them up and keep them standing. And, and they argue that those two bookends that keep the Christian life standing are the righteousness of Christ on the one hand and the power of the Holy Spirit on the other and that if we don't have both of them, the books will topple one way or the other, but if we have both, they can stand. We can stand in the knowledge that we have been cleansed, we have been justified, we have been accepted for the sake of what Jesus has done for us. That's not moving. And then he's granted us power to change us over time, faithfully working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And they press, in that book, they, they press that metaphor by saying that God has made this Christian life possible by giving us these two things, but that the Christian has a responsibility to lean on these two realities, not on ourselves, to lean all your books against, he's your righteousness, and he gives you power. Romans 8, 1 through 4, is a great life verse because... It gives you these two bookends to lean against. Rescue from sin's penalty and freedom from sin's mastery, sin's control. So the gospel gives us strength to stand too. It gives us new identity, new identity. So you, you think about how the wires of the good news don't always get connected to the way that we live, right? Even as Christians, we can live as though we believe that our status and acceptance with God is is comes to us on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, right? We hit refresh and see if we're still good. 
We hit refresh. After we pray, we hit refresh. Okay, okay, we're good. We forgot to pray, you hit refresh. Oh, oh no, you know. So we're, we're constantly wanting updates. How are we? Are we in or out? What kind of day did I have? And am I still in good graces? And what do I need to do to get myself back into good graces? We justify ourselves. We overcompensate. In our Christian duties and our spiritual activities, that we work as if every moment your value is on the line. That's why we do all sorts of other things as well, right? That's why we tend to notify others of the things that we've done in secret because I need you to know I'm a good dad, right? I, I'm playing with my kids like I'm supposed to. I'm, I'm running X miles a day. I am not addicted to cookies, right? I, I, I choose to eat them every day by my own volition, right? We, we, just, we have these ways of sending out signals. I'm the real thing, and there are a bunch of different ways you could see it. I want you to see that it's really, really there. What if... What if your value wasn't on the line? What if your identity wasn't up for grabs? What if, what if God already spoke? What if he already said, this is your identity, I wrote it. Mine. I wrote it. Clean. And maybe we could endure criticism as if we're not absolutely decimated by it for all kinds of reasons. We could endure criticism, one, because even if criticism is misguided, Criticism never captures how bad I really am, right? It's like, th that's your best material? We need to sit down and have coffee because there's a lot deeper story there behind what you think is wrong with me. It's, it's way worse. Th actually, thank you <laughs> for thinking it was that good, right? So there's, there's one side of how the gospel connects to criticism, but, but even on the other hand, too, we're, we're not rendered a puddle on the ground by criticism because the most important person in the room has already spoken, what room? Any room you're in, the most important person in the room has already spoken. We don't deserve what he said to us, but it's the most real thing about you because it's what God says. In Romans 4, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. So our identity in Christ is meant to enable all kinds of newness grounded in our identity so we can sit loosely to human opinion and we can lean in when God starts talking. And third, fresh wonder. Fresh wonder. So Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And then Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. Th think about the gospel logic that's there. He who has been forgiven much loves much, and he who loves me obeys me. In other words, you meditate on forgiveness up there at the, the fountainhead, and you meditate on your forgiveness that you've been shown in Christ, and you'll love him more, and you love him and you'll obey him. It will be a, an, just the fruit of a life that's meditating on the goodness of the gospel. Love him and you'll obey him. On the other hand, you just think about how that plays out if we give into legalism. If you are fixated on all the stuff you have to do today to keep God from ditching you, you're not gonna have fresh legs to run to the end of the race. But Jesus has, has personal notes that he writes to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And one of them, they're interesting in all their different ways because they're specifically written to unique categories of things that were going on in local churches. And here's the one that he wrote to Ephesus. He said this, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. I know that 
You have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know, if we didn't read verse 4, we're thinking, that's an awesome church. Where do I sign up? When does the membership class start? I mean, this sounds like an amazing place. They're active in ministry. They got convictions. They got discernment. They have moral backbone. They stand up for all the right things. They're enduring hardships for his name and not growing weary in enduring those hardships. And yet, until you get to verse 4, you don't find out. There are cracks forming in the foundation of the church at Ephesus. Why? Because the love was gone. Nobody knew it, apparently, because love for Jesus in Ephesus was slowly morphing into zeal and effort and grit for Jesus. And he said, you got all the grit you could ever dream of, but you've left your first love. It's motivated by all the wrong things. What's, what's the key to Christian obedience? Three words, fall in love. <laughs> fall in love. See the glory of this Jesus and this God who reveals himself in his word. I love what this quote says, Tim Keller. A friend of C.S. Lewis was once asked, is it easy to love God? And he replied, it's easy to those who do it. That is not as paradoxical as it sounds. When you fall deeply in love, you want to please the beloved. You don't wait for the person to ask you to do something for her. You eagerly research and learn every little thing that brings her pleasure. Then you get it for her, even if it costs you money or great inconvenience. Your wish is my command, you feel, and it doesn't feel oppressive at all. From the outside, bemused friends may think she's leading him around by the nose, but from the inside, it feels like heaven. For a Christian, it's the same with Jesus. The love of Christ constrains. Once you realize how Jesus gave himself for you, you aren't afraid of giving up your freedom and therefore finding your freedom in him. This is why Romans 8 is a life verse that we all need. You come to the end of this chapter and you're told by God himself, nothing can separate us now. Nothing can separate you from my love. And he just says, go, go whistle for the greatest, most powerful entities in the world, the most powerful forces in heaven, earth, and hell. Life, death, angels, demons, present, future. He says, none of them, all in collection, can break my grip of love on your life. What does Christianity offer that we can't get anywhere else? <laughs> the penalty that was coming for you is gone. There is no condemnation. And the dominating grip of sin is broken. You can be new. You can be different. You can be changed. Christianity gives us a God who loves us out of death and loves us into freedom.